Good morning, everybody. God is good. And all the time. Amen. Isn't that good? That we serve a good God? Well, it's an honor for me to be here again. Thank you so much, Pastor Riley, Elsie, leadership, and every single member here for, for coming out and being part of the family and allowing God to minister to you through even someone like me. Because every single one of us are only jars of clay filled with a precious gift. And that gift is here for you today. So tell me, how many of you have been doing a lot of thinking lately? How many of you have been doing a lot of thinking lately? Yeah, you've been doing a lot of thinking lately. Isn't that right? I think everyone in our country has been doing a lot of thinking. What kind of thinking are we doing? Because it's important to know what kind of thinking we're doing. How many of you would like to know what kind of thinking you've been doing? No, you don't want to know, do you? Because it's been coming out of your mouth as well, isn't it? God wants you to know something this morning. This is completely off what I'm sharing on, by the way. God wants you to know that you need to change your thinking. Are you hearing me, church? You see, right now, some of you are facing what you might think are impossible situations. How many of you think you're facing impossible situations? And someone comes up here and they say, all things are possible to those who believe. And you say, I believe, right? And you go home and then you think on how you don't believe. I'm just being real with you. Hey, here's a fun fact. It's happened to me. Did you, see, did you hear how quiet the church went? It happens to everyone. And if you can't be honest about it, you're pretending. I don't care who you are, what man of God you are. Everybody has a moment where they doubt, a moment where they rethink, a moment where the enemy comes in to try and tempt you to stop believing. Come on. How many of you know, how many of you have heard me preach before? I know, because I've heard me preach before. Okay, so you know how I am, right? Okay? I'm a real kind of person when it comes to this stuff. Because there's no point in me coming here, sharing something with you, and it doesn't matter to you, because it's not relevant to what God wants to say. Am I right? What has been on my heart in a heavy way has been this, this emotion that God is feeling for us. You know, um, we spent quite a bit of time this morning praising God and worshiping Him. How many of you enjoyed that? How many of you felt the presence of God? How many of you sensed God's presence in your heart? Okay, how many of you walk out of here and keep sensing His presence? If you looked around, you'd notice that there were very few hands. And I'm happy that you're being honest. Thank you, because that's good. It's good to be honest. Because the reason why you walk out of here not feeling his presence is not because God is jailed in this house. Because, see, God doesn't live in a little box here. 
And then you come here and you sing enough songs and then he magically comes out. That's not how it works. He lives in here. And if he lives in here, then where is he when you don't feel him? Still here. Which means your feelings don't determine where God is. His word does. How are you with me? This is important because, you see, in your workplace, in the middle of the storm, there he is with you. Oh, you need to get this. God wants you to know you're not alone. How many of you felt alone? Thousand people around you, but you still feel alone. Around family and friends, but you still still feel alone. Come on. Do you know why? Because there's only one kind of fellowship you were built for. And if your relationship with God is broken, no amount of relationships this way with people is going to fix it. You can have a thousand friends. You can have 20,000 friends on Facebook. It means nothing. One friendship with God, and you'll change the world. Come on. One friendship. Just one friendship. Abraham didn't have a thousand friends. He was called a friend of God. And today he's the father of nations. How many of you know anyone else who has a legacy like that? A father of nations. He's the father of faith. It seems to me that when we read scripture, God is very concerned with relationship. Isn't he? There's two specific relationships God is very concerned with. The first one is the relationship between a father and a son. Many parables Jesus talks about what happens when the master speaks to the servant and how the servants act. And then he talks about how what happens when the sons don't act properly and how the father responds to the sons. How many of you guys remember the particle son story? Okay, I'm, I'm trying to get you to think back with me. You'll see that this relationship is constantly brought up when it comes to the kingdom. Isn't that right? Because there's fundamentally something that God is trying to get at with these stories and with this emphasis on this type of relationship. He's trying to get us to understand the kind of relationship he wants with us. One, just as a son and a father are in a relationship, so God wants a relationship with you. Yes, ladies, even with you. But just as God wants a father-son relationship, he also has a bride-bridegroom relationship through the son. Now, what are you when you lose your husband or your wife? What are you if you lose your parents? You are technically in the position man found himself right after he rebelled against God. 
Are you listening to me? You see, in Genesis chapter 2, it says something very important. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him, this is chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. What did he do? Is that an option? Okay, is this before Adam sinned or after he sinned? Before. So he received the command. Okay. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Am I right? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now the word therefore you will surely die. The best rendering doesn't make grammatical sense in English. So they don't put it in there. But the, what, they, what it actually says more accurately is you will die and will continue to die. You will die dying. Which means that because you have eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, not only will you be spiritually severed from me, but that severing will cause your physical body to begin to decay as well. Into where you will completely expire. Did we notice that that is exactly what happened? Is that what happened, guys? So if God told Adam that when he ate from this tree, then he would surely die, then it would stand to reason that if I read this statement backwards, if I said, if you don't eat from a tree, you will surely live, then that would mean that he would never die. Am I right? So that means that God didn't intend for Adam to die. He didn't create Adam with death in mind. He created Adam with eternity in mind. Adam was meant to be an eternal being, right? And as he was because he had a spirit. Is that not true? So God intended his body to continue to exist without corruption. And before corruption came in, it would continue without corruption. That means that death didn't come from God's creation. Death didn't come from God's plan for man. Death was never part of God's plan for man. How many of you know the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples that Pastor Riley mentioned earlier on? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done, isn't it right? On earth, even as it is in. Okay, so how many of you agree with that? Do you want God's will done on the earth as it is in heaven? Well, then you have to ask yourself some questions. How and what is the will of God in heaven? And how does it look? And then how do we get it to look like that here? Isn't it right? And in that very prayer, we are praying for heaven to invade earth. Am I right? 
Guys, are you sure? Okay, good, because this is important, okay? So is there a sickness in heaven? Then should there be sickness on the earth? Is there jealousy, envy, malice, strife, hatred, bitterness, anger, twistedness? Is that in heaven? Should any of those things be on the earth? Okay. Is there demonic possession in heaven? Kind of a strange thing to ask, okay? No, there isn't, is there? Then should there be any demonic possession on the earth? Okay, here's the kicker. Is there death in heaven? And why do we accept it here? You accept death like it's normal. And yet God never created you for it. The only reason why anyone is ever orphaned or widowed is because death. Because of the law of sin and death. There's no other reason why there are orphans or widows in this world other than the fact that there is a law of sin and death. It causes abandonment. It causes loss. It causes destruction. It causes pain. It causes disconnection. How many of you are looking forward to the day that you lose someone? No one? No takers? But I thought, I thought it's a circle of life, Mark. No, it's a circle of death. This isn't a kuna matara. This isn't about putting your behind in your past. This isn't about saying mufasa. This isn't some new age thing. We have to know our enemy and we have to know our friend. What most people do is this. One day when I die, I'll go to heaven. Isn't that right? One day when I die, I will finally be free from all sickness. One day when I die, I'll finally stop sinning. One day when I die, I'll finally be perfect because I'll be in heaven. Do you know what? You just told me that death is your savior, not Jesus. Because if you are postponing what Jesus purchased until you die, then death is going to give you what Jesus already gave you. And death is your savior, not Jesus. Are you thinking with me this morning? Let me tell you, God hates what sin does to mankind. He absolutely hates it. In Romans 5.14 it says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Sin reigned. Death reigned. Do you see that? Do you see that? Why does it say from Adam until Moses? Because death has no longer got the right to reign since Jesus. Come on now. Death has no longer got the right to reign since Jesus. Is this a tough message for you? I can see some of you are struggling. 
Do you believe God is a life giver or a life taker? So then why do we always blame him for taking life at funerals? We don't know why God took them so young. God took Enoch and he's still alive. He doesn't need to kill you to get you there. I don't know about you, but I don't show up to church just so that I can have my ego stroked. I come to church so God will challenge my heart so I can be more like him. I don't know about you, but there's no death in God. The Bible says God is light, and in him there is not even a little bit of darkness. Death does not belong in you. It doesn't belong in your speech. It doesn't belong in your life. It doesn't belong in your thinking. It doesn't belong in your destiny. That doesn't mean you won't lay down your life. It just means death cannot take it. Do you think Jesus was robbed of his life? Or do you think Jesus gave his life? He gave it, right? He said, no one takes this from me. <laughs> I lay it down. Father has given me authority to lay it down and to pick it up again. Isn't that right? What gave Jesus such incredible confidence when he was walking on the earth and doing the things that he was doing and saying the things that he was saying was the fact that he knew who his father was. Jesus was not an orphan. You know what the problem is? Sin came in and turned you all into orphans. And some of you, you've come into the kingdom, you're in God's house, and you still think you're abandoned. You still think you're alone. You still think that you don't have a papa. My Bible says he sent forth the spirit of his son, crying, Abba. Do you know God as your Abba? Are you sure? How can you know him as your Abba and be depressed? Are you kidding me? God is your dad. How can you be depressed? Like the minute you think you feel kind of depressed, you should say, do you know who I am? I am a son of the living God and you will not touch me. Depression? Do you, do you know what depression is? Huh? It's a devil putting you under its foot, telling you to obey it. That's what it is. Do you want to keep up that, that situation? Is that how you want to live? Well, then stop it. Just stop that. But some doctor tells you you're depressed and then suddenly you believe it. When the God of the universe tells you, I gave you joy, righteousness, and peace in the Holy Ghost. And where do you go? Oh, but poor old me. Oh, life is so hard. One day when I die, I'll finally get everything I need. When you're dead, you don't need anything. Let me tell you how determined God is to rescue his sons and daughters. You see, his children were abandoned when sin came into the world. And God did not hesitate for a moment to put together a rescue plan to rescue us from our abandonment, to rescue us from our loss. 
to rescue us from our place of feeling insecure and helpless. And just to remind us who we really were, he came as one of us. He called himself Jesus, and he came to rescue you from a hostage situation that sin had you in. Are you listening to me? This is why Romans 6 verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to naught. Or might be done away with. What does it mean to do away with something? Hello? Does it mean that it's still there or does it mean that it has been removed? So when you do away with something, it is no longer there. Does he say he nailed some of your sins? Or does he say he nailed the whole body of sin? Hello? The body of sin means the volume, the total volume of sin. Does that make sense? In Jesus' body, he took the full volume of sin and he nailed it there. So for what was the purpose that he did that? That it might be brought to nothing or that it might be done away with. And the consequence of that is that it would no longer have the right to enslave you. Because he wanted to rescue you from being an orphan. I heard a very prominent teacher say that we have many orphanages in the world. They're just called churches. See, an orphan is always afraid. An orphan is always suspicious. An orphan is always competing and fighting for position and power. An orphan is always trying to look better than someone else. An orphan is trying to get the most attention. Because it believes intrinsically that if it isn't the center of everyone's world, then it isn't accepted. Because it doesn't know that it has already been accepted by the Father. Because it doesn't know its Father. This orphan spirit is what is robbing the church of knowing who they are and whose they are. Are you hearing me this morning? Because if you don't understand whose you are, you will never know who you are. And before, you belonged to the devil. Before you got saved, he had you in his hand. He was controlling your life. You were a slave to him. Why? Because you saw the rules and you broke them. Anyone here want to argue with that? How many of you sinned? None, none of you, none of you have sinned. Oh, glory, hallelujah. I'm in the wrong house. Guys, we need to go somewhere else so we can evangelize. These people don't even have sin here. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now you can either recognize that or you can be a liar. Bible doesn't lie. Am I right? So if we've all sinned and fall short, then sin was stealing your identity from the beginning. Sin was stealing your value from the beginning. Sin was stealing your relationship with God from the beginning. 
Sin was cutting you off from who you really are from the beginning. You guys know the word sin means to miss, right? It means if you had a target and you shot the target and you didn't hit the bullseye, then you missed the target. Now, to miss the target means to not, um, in a sense, to not hit the actual point of focus. Okay? It also means to not be true to oneself. To not be true to oneself. In other words, you are not acting according to the potential you carry. You are acting contrary to the potential you carry. When someone, if someone was created evil, it would be sin for them to be good. If someone was created good, it would be sin for them to be evil. Okay, so that means that even as someone who identifies as a sinner, you're still saying that you are acting contrary to what you were created to be. You were created for righteousness, but, you're, but you keep hitting unrighteousness, so you're identifying as a sinner. But the reality is, you weren't called to be a sinner, you were called to be a son. You know, the fascinating thing about sin and son is that the only difference between the two words is I and O. And it's either about everyone or, or it's about you, I or O. You see, that missing the mark is all about telling you that you're not acting according to who you are. It's not telling you who you are. Sin doesn't tell you who you are. But yet, we were so enslaved to it that we took our identity from the mistakes we made rather than from the words of God. How many of you believed or have identified with your mistakes in the past? And some of you even still do. You make a mistake and then you think, oh, I'm a liar or I'm a cheater or I'm a this or I'm a that. Listen, those words are trying to grab your identity. How many of you love your children? Only four of you. Anybody else in the room? Okay, so you love your children. Do you love them when they do good? Do you love them when they do bad? Are you pleased with them when they do bad? Are you pleased with them when they do good? So you see, taking pleasure out of your children is different to loving your children. God loves the whole world, but he only takes pleasure over those who please him. So God's love for you is constant. His love doesn't change because you do bad or because you do good. His love stays the same. But his pleasure, the pleasure he takes in your life, he takes out as you become obedient to your true self. You see, it is because of this being brought to nothing that we are now no longer under the control of sin. Listen, as long as you believe sin has control in your life, you can never walk as a son. Because sin is what robbed you of your sonship from the beginning. Do you understand? It was sin and death that took away your sonship with God, your connection to God. And so from that time onwards, you were disconnected as family members. You were now called criminals and rebels. Until Jesus came and rescued us and brought us back into the family. Isn't that right? 
Isn't it, doesn't the word say in one, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, 11. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearances and not in the heart. If, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. So the death that everyone is waiting for to save them is one that Christ has already died for you so that you can enter into it so that he can save you. And he died for all so that we who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So you can see here clearly what's happening is through that death, burial, and resurrection in Christ, we are brought into a new family with God. And it is in that place that we are reunited with God. This is why John wrote this in John 1, verse 9 to 13. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. This is talking about Jesus. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now some translations will say the, son, the sons of God. But really what it's talking about is becoming family members of God. Who were born, so notice, who were born. Okay, now, what do you know about being born? You come into it. Am I right? Okay, so if you're born into a family, then you are put into that family. Am I right? You're there by birth. Okay, watch. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Which means your birth into the kingdom of heaven was God's will for you. Okay, listen. This means that if you call upon Jesus and believe in his name, he gives you the ability to become a son or a daughter of God. Literally born of the Spirit of God. Born from above, or as I very controversially like to say, God born. It's funny how you say it like that and everyone starts freaking out. Because I am God born. I'm born of God. Now how can I be born of God and then identify as a sinner? I, if I keep identifying as a sinner, then I deny that I'm born of God and I keep acting like an orphan even though I'm in my father's house. Guess what? Orphans in the Father's house are just as blessed as sons in the Father's house. Orphans just don't get all the blessing because they're not resting in the Father's house. 
Do you understand that? God wants to put an end to orphanhood. He wants to put an end to widowhood. He does not like what sin has done to relationships that emulate the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is all about the relationship between a father and his son and the bride and the bridegroom. And literally, the, the widow and the orphan are exact examples of how sin has come in and has literally destroyed the fabric of what God intended to be a holy and pure place where people are brought up in excellence and are brought to a place of fulfillment and flourishing. How many of you believe you need your neighbor next to you? Can you turn to your neighbor and say, I believe I need you. Jesus put you here for me. You see, the devil works on getting orphans offended. Because orphans are always waiting for the shoe to drop. Have you noticed that? If you've ever dealt with an orphan... You'll take them in, you'll look after them, you'll be nice to them, and they will kind of wait for you to finally do something they can say, ah, I knew it. Have you, ever, have you ever met people like that in the church? They're always waiting. They always they take anything they hear someone else say and turn it into something that somehow you meant for evil. And the reason is because they're suspicious of everyone. You've got to realize this. this. This is very dangerous when orphans try and find their identity in their position and in power. Because the minute they do that, they wreak havoc. So you don't want to be one of those. Am I correct? We want to be those who recognize, no, my father loves me. If all I did in my life was get to know my father and do what he asked me, would I be okay? If I never stood on a platform, if I never did any of the things that I'm doing right now, if I just went and just was obedient to my father, shared the gospel with people on the street, did whatever he told me to, would I be fulfilling his will? Okay, let me, let me be honest with you. Do you know what the minimum requirement is for a believer to be fulfilling the will of their father? Do you know what the minimum requirement is? I'm not talking about, belie I'm not talking about getting saved. I'm talking about to fulfill the will of the Father, the minimum requirements. Do you know what that is? Make one disciple. How many disciples have you made? See, I don't care if you've prayed for a thousand people and a thousand people got healed, but if you didn't make one disciple, you're still not fulfilling the gospel. Matthew 28 says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say go and heal all nations. Doesn't say go raise the dead of all nations. Doesn't say that. It says go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus had one chance to talk to them and give them a final command, and that's what he said. Why? And he said, Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. What did he command them? Whatever city you enter, heal the sick therein. Cast out devils, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, preach the kingdom of God is here. So it wasn't like Jesus was saying, don't do those things. What he was saying is the priority is to make disciples. Which means that if I haven't made one disciple, I'm still not fulfilling the Great Commission. And how many of you know that the Great Commission is the only thing we've actually got on our agenda? You don't know that? Anybody? Can I see some hands? 
that the, the Great Commission is the only thing you have on your agenda, not your family, not your friends, not, your, not anybody else, not your life, not what you like, not what you don't like, the Great Commission. That's the only thing. Tough one, eh? The only thing that matters is eternity. How many of you are, um, have been here for a while? How many of you have been here for a while? Not old, you've been here for a while. In other words, you've at least been here for more than 60 years. You've been here for a while. You know, the people who have been here for a while, you've got to ask them about some perspectives. You know what they tell you? One day I was 30, next day I was 60. Do you know why? Because this life is like this. How many of you feel like that right now, that your life went by like this? Come on. So if your life went by just like that, just like that, then that means that this life is not very long, is it? Is this life long? So what is the only thing you can leave behind? Changed lives, isn't it? Isn't it right? The only way you can change lives is to make disciples. That's it. It's the only way. Do you know what making a disciple means? You know what it means? It means to take the kingdom culture and to instill it into other people. To where they live the kingdom culture. Which means you have to live the kingdom culture too. Did Jesus live what he taught? So it can't just be words. It can't be sitting down and just going through a page of words and saying, oh, that's fancy words. We like those words. We're going to put them up on our fridge, and that's where it stays. Those words have to become real to us, and when we take those words as real, we have to put them into practice in our lives so we can see the benefit of them so that when we tell people about what God has taught us, they can see the evidence of it in our lives. How many of you want signs, wonders, and miracles to operate in your life? Do you? Well, guess what? Turning one person from, from death to life, is that, a, a, is that a miracle? Taking one person and helping them find Jesus and walk in righteousness, is that a miracle? How many of you could say that I do that constantly? Now, this is not a condemnation session. I'm trying to help you identify the fact that what you think you've been doing might not be what you should be doing. Am I right? Because if you don't change your direction, you won't change your destiny. And you all want miracles to work, don't you? Well, what are miracles for unless you're going to disciple people? Do you think God just wants everyone to just heal thousands and thousands of people and then that's it? Or do you think those thousands and thousands of people deserve to come into the kingdom and know the Father as their Father? Do you think ultimately God wants to rescue orphans and bring them into the kingdom of God? You see, in Galatians 4, verse 4 to 7, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. Say, I am no longer a slave. Now you can do better than that. Right, I'm no longer a slave. How many of you know that song? I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave. But what are you? But I am a son. What does it say there? Then an heir through God. An heir. What is an heir? Okay, I want you to think about the richest person in the, in the world today. Say so Elon Musk or Bill Gates or one of those guys, right? How would you like to become an heir? How would you like to become an heir of one of those people? Hello? Would you like to be an heir of one of those people or do you not understand what an heir is? Do you think Elon Musk's son will have everything, all the access to everything Elon Musk has? Do you think Bill Gates' son will have access to everything that Bill Gates has? So then if you were born into their family and you became an heir, would you have access to whatever a son can have access to? So would you like that? How much more so should you want that, not just for yourself, but for others, since God himself has made that available to us. God's wanting to rescue us from orphanhood. We can see that God would move heaven and earth to rescue an orphan. That's why he left the 99 and he went for the one. Why? Because that's what he would do. Why? Because he loves to bring back the orphan. So what is God's will concerning this? Well, there's several passages. I'm just going to read some of them. Psalm 68, 4 to 6, it says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitude the solitary in a home. In other words, those who are abandoned and alone, he puts them in homes and families. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious will dwell in a parched land. Do you notice, can you see God's heart here? Can you see the psalmist is writing about what God does? God is a father to the fatherless. And even now, through Jesus, he's a husband to the husbandless. We are the bride, and he is the bridegroom. God is strongly using very strong family relationship connections to show you just how united and interconnected and a part of him he wants you to be. He is saying, yes, you have been abandoned. Yes, Adam abandoned you. Adam brought sin and death into the world. Yes, Adam has um, not been the father he ought to have been. Yes, he brought sin and death into the world. But my son, my son will come and he will make a better way. 
My son will come and he will open up the way through his own flesh. The Bible says in Hebrews that when the spear went into his side and his side was opened, it was the curtain that went into the Holy of Holies, allowing a path for us to come in. Come on, man. You've got to understand what Jesus has done for you. There is a responsibility as a son. Isn't there? In fact, God was so determined that in Exodus 22, 21, he said, you shall not wrong a, a, a person who's like a sojourner, which is a traveler, or oppress him. For you were travelers in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Do you think God is a bit intense about this? In Psalm 146, 5 to 9, it says, Blessed is he who helps, sorry, whose help is the God is in the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord, his God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed. And who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the traveler. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Come on, guys. This is the heart of God. Do you understand that? This is the heart of God. In Isaiah 1 16 to 20, it says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Can you see? There's a blessing in looking after widows and orphans. Why? Because God's heart is to rescue the orphan and the widowed because you were one of them. Spiritually, you were an orphan. And God rescued you. And he brought you into his family and he made you a son. And he put a ring on your finger and he put a cloak over your shoulders and he said, welcome home. But most of you are still standing at the gate, wondering whether you should come in. Wondering whether God has really accepted you, whether He really loves you. Yet He moved heaven and hell for you. Jesus came from heaven, went down into hell, wrecked it, and came back up again. <laughs> Now, how many of you are sons of God? Right, so you are sons of God. Am I right? So if we are sons of God, then we understand the love of the Father for us. We understand the acceptance of the Father. 
We understand that there's nothing we can do that he would love us more, but that everything we do, we do to bring pleasure to him. Is that the kind of son you are? You don't feel the need to outperform your neighbor. You feel the need to outperform the devil. Why? Because you want to put an end to the death, murder, destruction, lies, deceit, and corruption that he brings. We work with God. We don't work for him. We don't work for God. We work with God. He is working in me and through me according to the power that is in me. Isn't that right? Does the Bible say in him we live and move and have our being? Does it say that? How many of you know that it is the, the, that it is the yoke that Jesus gives us that breaks the yoke of slavery? Come on now. Am I right? What does it say? It says he breaks the yoke of slavery. What is that, what is that anointing that breaks the yoke of slavery? It is the anointing of sonship. Do you understand that? It is the fact that you have been declared a son of God by the finished work of the cross. The minute that sonship comes upon you, the weight of slavery leaves you. Why? Because you were never created for slavery. Remember Jesus said, come to me all you who are heavy laden and burdened and I will give you what? Why? Because my burden is easy. My yoke is easy. Isn't that right? What was the yoke? Because the yoke he's talking about, well, you know what a yoke is. How many of you know what a yoke is? We're not talking about eggs here, right? So a yoke, <laughs> a yoke is like this thing that they would put over an ox and the ox would carry this yoke. That's what it was. And so every rabbi used to have its own, he used to have his own yoke, the, like a set of responsibilities and purposes that were for them. So whenever you followed a rabbi, you'd learn their yoke and you'd carry their yoke. So Jesus was wearing his own yoke. The yoke he had was the yoke of sonship. And he was training his disciples how to be sons. What do we call it when we train sons? Anybody in the house? Don't worry. What, so what is it called? Fathering. Isn't it? So God is looking for people who have been made sons, who know who they are as sons, to start representing the Father's heart and fathering people into the kingdom and growing sons up in the kingdom. Because if you don't, you are leaving them orphaned. But Mark, you know, I've got so many things on my plate. There's so many stuff happening in my life. Well, you know what? Suck it up. I'm tired of your excuses, man. Just suck it up and go help someone. Because if it was you who needed the help, you would be the first one saying, yes, please help me. And I don't know, my Bible says, do unto others as you had one done unto you. I don't know, does your Bible say that? Furthermore, Jesus said, by this they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another even as I have loved you. How did Jesus love his disciples? He laid down his life for them. Are you really ready for this Christian thing? Are you really ready for this Christian thing? 
Are you? Because only my wife seems, sounds ready. Everyone else is like, nope, we're not ready. I'm going I'm to try and wrap it up here. James 1, 19 to 26. Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Okay? What is that? That's the word. Am I right? Have you been doing that this morning? At least three of you say yes. Everyone else is like, no. We've just been ignoring you all morning. Are you guys all there? Okay, so it's saying we must put these things away. Can you say, put away filthiness. Put away rampant wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word of God. Okay, now, that's the first step, right? Am I right? Then he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, you can sit there and you can literally be self-deceived right now. You know what the beautiful thing is about being self-deceived is you don't even know it. You see, no one says something they believe is wrong. Everyone says something they believe is right, even when they're wrong. Paul the Apostle, well, Paul, before he was the Paul the Apostle, he was Saul. He was killing Christians, and yet he believed he was right. Did you know that? And even though he thought he was right, was he right? No, he was wrong because he was self-deceived. Now, normal deception does that to you too. Self-deception is even worse because it means you convinced yourself. So how do you become self-deceived? Well, I think he just told us, didn't he? So we should pay attention. Shouldn't we? How do we get self-deceived? When we don't do what we hear. Isn't that right? How many of you think it's a good idea to not do what you hear? Good. No one put their hands up. Well done. I think I can work with you like this. Okay. So you all believe you should do what you hear. How many do what they hear? Isn't that a problem? Listen, if, if we're not going to get real with this thing, we might as well not even have this thing. And this is not condemnation. I'm trying to expose this to you so that we can change it. How many of you want to change it? Come on, show me a little bit more enthusiasm. All right, so you want to change this thing, right? So you want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Am I right? Why? Because there's a world out there that's abandoned, alone, and destitute. There are orphans out there who need to come back home. And they need you. And God has made you his plan A. And the beautiful thing is, he doesn't have a plan B. You're it. 
God hasn't written you off. He hasn't put you to the side. He hasn't got a special little ignore this one box. He's not like that. He believes in every single one of you. He knows that you can do this. Do you understand that? As insignificant as you think you might be, and I'm not saying that you are, but if you think that you are, if you think anything like that, you're wrong. God believes your life to be extremely significant. The problem is, as long as you believe the lies, as long as you buy into the orphan spirit, you will not walk in the full power of sonship. You see, sonship is anchored in righteousness. And righteousness makes you bold as a lion, which is why I'm like this. Listen, I was like this when I was a lot smaller too. I don't think it's because I'm big. You all think that this big thing is the reason I'm so intimidating. Forget it. Devils don't run because I've got a big tummy. They run because they know what's going to happen if they don't. Do you understand that? Can I end off with a testimony? Is that okay? I want to show you just how determined God is. A friend of mine, one Sunday afternoon, decided with his wife and her, and her mother that they were going to come down to Durban and they were going to come and honor her father by putting his ashes on the sea. But they're from Joburg, so they don't really know the sea that well. How many of you know the sea? How many of you know you don't walk backwards into the sea? So what ends up happening is they end up going out there in the afternoon and the water is very shallow. It's not very deep. They're not planning on swimming. They're just planning on doing this one thing, honoring her father's request and then going back to Joburg. Well, I didn't even know they were doing this. At about 7 o'clock in the evening, I get a call from my friend. Mark, my wife has drowned. I said, what happened? He said, well, we were at the sea. And the tide came from nowhere. It was shallow. We didn't even see anything. All of a sudden, they were all pulled in to the sea. And I was standing facing them, so my face, I'm talking about him now, right? He was facing the ocean, and they had their back to the ocean, and they were all putting out this box with the ashes so they can go into the sea. Kind of like just a normal little thing. But as they were doing that, the water rose behind them and pulled them into the sea. My friend says that everyone grabbed a hold of one another's hands. And the water was so powerful that it pulled them apart. Now, how many of you know that's quite, that's quite something? And they all ended up in the sea, and he ended up standing there in kind of the sand, with them obviously had let go of him, right? The very next minute, he looks up, and he sees the, that his wife is in the wave. And the wave comes down, crashes, and she falls out, but he's, she's over there. So he starts running. How many of you know that when you run on the beach, you run a lot slower? Hey? Especially if you're from Joburg. Or if you're like me and I don't run on the beach often. <laughs> 
What happens is he runs at speed that he can, fullest, fastest speed he can. And he couldn't get to her in time. So he grabbed her, took her right back in again. And this happened for about, I think he said 10 to 15 minutes, where the sea would just pull her in and throw her out. And all he was doing was trying to find his wife, running up and down the beach, trying to find out where the sea was going to throw her out next. Um, She has two children, a boy and a girl, beautiful kids. And my friend is her husband. And that day, for a moment, those kids were orphaned. And that father was widowed. Because at the end, she didn't even move anymore. She was flopping around just as the sea would do to her whatever it wanted to. And I want you to think about that, what that would look like if there was someone you knew, someone you loved, being thrown around, seeing that they were no longer there anymore. She finally got spit out by the sea, and he was close enough. A couple of other people grabbed her. They started to do CPR, but there was no pulse. She was already gone, dead. But they wouldn't give up. So they kept CPR going. They kept just keep going, keep going. Eventually, they almost broke one of her ribs trying to get her back. And boom, the water came out and her heart started pumping. And she started breathing again. Oh, wait, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. She came back. She was gone. Her brain function was zero. She's brain dead. She's breathing She's not even registering. She's not even there. So a helicopter comes in and picks her up. And what we talk about this side of the story, but at the same time, her mother went through the exact same thing in the water, and she died as well. And they did CPR on her. She came back, and they took her to another hospital. Two people did and came back. After that, I met my friend at the hospital. They had just brought her in from inside the helicopter probably a couple of minutes before I got there. And they hadn't even cleaned her or anything lest they somehow disturb the body and and limit her chances of success. I don't know why they were that concerned because when they told my friend what her success rate might be, they said maybe 2%. And what they meant by 2% was that maybe there was a 2% chance that she might at least continue living in the state that she was in or maybe a little bit better, but not much better than that. They weren't talking about someone coming back. There was no chance of that. The brain scans inconclusively said, should I say conclusively said, she was brain dead. It was gone. It was over. How many of you know after a battle like that, hearing a message like that, you don't feel that great? You see, unfortunately... When you're a son of God, you're living ready. You live ready. You don't live unprepared. You live ready. And sometimes, yes, you're more ready than others. But for the most part, you're ready. Am I right? So here I am, sitting in this situation. I can hear the doctors telling my friend, listen, if she makes it through the night. If. Like, listen, this guy was very, very doubtful. He said that we're giving her maximum oxygen, we're giving her maximum adrenaline. Her lungs are swollen, 
they've got inflammation, the air can go in, but the carbon dioxide can't get out fast enough. If we've given her as much oxygen as we can, if we give her any more, it'll pop. Not, not good. Hmm? So I looked at my friend and I said to him, we've heard all this now. Now I want to tell you, you know nothing is impossible for God. You know that our God can do all things. He said, yes. I said to him, look, I've seen bullets disappear. I think we can handle this. He said, okay. You know what the one thing was about him that stood out to me? The first thing he said to me when I started speaking to him about praying for his wife, he said to me, Mark, I know that this is from the devil. God would never do this to my wife. Guess what happened? I went there and I prayed. I laid hands on her, commanded her to come back, to be normal. I said to her, you will have full memory. You'll, you'll remember everything. You will be normal. It'll be as if it never happened. That's the way it will be. How many of you would have liked that to happen? So Monday, we get this little group, of like a message group you put together so that he could tell everyone what was going on. You know how it is when you're in a situation like that, everyone wants to know what's happening, and you end up repeating yourself like a thousand times. If you've ever been in a situation like that, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, well, then bless you, but you will understand if it ever had to happen to you. And I don't want it to, but if it had to, then at least you'll know. So the reality is that we're getting these messages through this message thing telling us, okay, her, uh, she made it through the night. Okay, that's good, right? Isn't that right? Is that good? Okay, she made it through the night. Then she made it through that night. So she's on Tuesday. Wednesday, they have to do dialysis on her. So they do some dialysis. We pray again, my wife and I. And they take her off dialysis because she doesn't need it anymore. Great. Thursday, she's getting better. By the end of Thursday, my friend decides he has to go back to Joburg and sort out some affairs so that he can be more prepared for a long-term sit-in. They've told him he's looking at about three to four months. Three to four months. I said to my wife, that ain't happening. She, she knows. I told her. I said, listen, this will not be classified as a medical miracle. This is no medical miracle. This will be a miracle for the kingdom of God and nothing else. We will have a supernatural thing. Yeah, I said, that's it. I said, you wake up right now. You come back. You be normal. You do as I told you in Jesus' name. Sometimes you got to get fed up. you got to get fed up with the devil and his little schemes. You have to decide, no more. Uh-uh. No. It's not happening. Done. Have you ever been like that with a naughty child? Well, the devil you can get even more wuss with without feeling bad. Isn't that right? Like, he's like a piñata. He is. You can whack him as much as you want. Just whack him. Just whack him when you feel like it. Just whack him again. Listen, no matter how many times you whack him, he still deserves it. Just whack him again. Because you know what? When you get an itch, just whack him again. When you wake up and you think, just whack him again. But seriously, the Bible says he's been defeated and disarmed. 
Don't buy into this rubbish that he's some kind of highfalutin angel that you're supposed to beg or something. When Jude was talking about that, he wasn't talking about believers who know who they are in Jesus Christ. He was talking about people like the sons of Sceba who didn't even know who Jesus was. The book of Jude is not talking to you about your authority in Christ. It's talking about people who don't know their authority. Don't buy into the book of Jude. The devil is defeated. He's under your feet. You're in Christ. He's got no authority. Do you understand what that means? I'm, I'm not kidding, man. I'm like, the, 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 the moss that grows on trees has got more authority than he does. Do you understand that? Because it actually has a right to exist in this physical realm. The only reason the devil gets anything done is because you let him. Just whack him. Just whack him. I'm telling you. You wake up in the morning and you don't feel so good. Just whack him, just for the fun of it. It'll make you feel better and heaven will celebrate. Don't be offended because you can whack the devil. That's just a bad thing to be offended about. Because I whack him every day just for the fun of it. Just for the fun of it. Because he doesn't come touch me. And he doesn't touch my family. And he doesn't touch my friends. And this was where he was crossing a line. So my friend went away. Went all the way back to Joburg to sort out some stuff. Saturday afternoon, he gets a message from the nurses. One of the nurses observed that someone who was supposed to be brain dead and unable to move around was moving around in their room. And so they decided politely to investigate. Yes, exactly. They decided to go and investigate. And what did they find? They find Mandy completely and totally alive and kicking and looking around. So they said, look here. And they looked. she looked there. And so then they sent a message to him saying, we don't believe this. Your wife is waiting for you. Get here. He didn't even hesitate. Early that morning, he got in his car with his friends, and he came all the way from Joburg back to Durban to come and see his wife. She still had the pipe down her throat. You know that thing they put down your throat? That's not a nice thing. When you wake up, it's like, oh, it feels very weird. Okay, are you, are you listening to what I'm saying? So they get there, and now watch this. She's been gone, right, for like three, what was it, almost a week, okay? So he says, do you remember the bank pin? Click, 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 100% remembered. Do you remember what happened? Yes, I remember exactly what happened. She said when she woke up, she was afraid that everyone else had died and that she was the only survivor. She knew exactly what happened. She remembered everything. Come on, man. She remembered everything. They did a scan after that. It was like, oh my word, like these are two different people. Because Jesus is king. And nothing is impossible for him. And our Father in heaven doesn't want sin creating orphans and widows. So we need to change our thinking. Now we know the heart of God, so how should we respond? Let us respond according to His word. Let us make God's priority our priority. And let us love them 
even as he has rescued and loved us. Let us bring them into God's family and do all we can to show them God's father heart. Because that is what a son of God is meant to do. Amen.